Thank you for your worship and song this morning. Always helps to prepare my own heart to go to the Word of God. So thank you for helping me get ready to preach uh, this morning. I appreciate that. I want to invite you to open in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Uh, we're going to begin there, uh, Acts chapter 17. And then uh, from there we will go over to the book of uh, 1 Thessalonians. So Acts chapter 17. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Now when they, this is Paul's missionary team, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded. A great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them. They are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. They troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So When they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they, they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul in Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. And immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And just simply the opening of Paul's greeting. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that you might open your word to us. We thank you for the word that you've given to us, inspired from heaven itself. May our ears be tuned. May your spirit open our eyes to see and our ears to hear, that we might behold wonderful things in your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I had the opportunity recently to 
go see the portrayal of uh, Winston Churchill in The Darkest Hour. For those of you, and some can remember back to those days, May, June of 1940 was a very dark time uh, in the world, but to, in Europe and especially in England. Uh, Hitler was just making his way across Europe and seemingly unstoppable because no one had stopped him. And uh, Great Britain found itself standing nearly alone and certainly was the next nation in Hitler's bullseye. And it was in, it was in that moment that uh, onto the world's stage strode Winston Churchill, uh, elected prime minister in that month of May, in what uh, came to be called England's darkest hour. And what made him stand out was that he, he stood against the conventional wisdom that was prevailing in Europe and that was prevailing even there in England, that the only way to survive was to appease Hitler and negotiate for peace. That there would be no survival apart from that. In one scene in this, in this movie, he, he, calls, he calls his party together. He's, gonna, he's about to go into Parliament and to deliver his very famous Never Surrender speech. He calls his party together and he rallies them by painting a word picture of what a negotiated peace would look like for England. What it would look like, he said, was a Nazi flag flying over Parliament. And Churchill said, that is not survival. That's not survival. And so facing the impossible, he stood against the darkness, and he rallied a nation to defeat Hitler, saving England with an alliance, and many would suggest saving Western civilization. We live in a dark hour. It's different than 1940. But it's a, a dark hour just the same. I, I don't need to give you the litany of it all. You, you see it and you hear it and you read of it every day. Facing a, a moral revolution that has upended everything. And the greatest casualty of all in that revolution has been the truth itself. We are grappling in our times with an idolatrous vision, idolatrous vision of personal autonomy. And it is pervasive in every sector of our society. The church has not been excluded from that. The clout of the church is vanishing. There was a rather, an article on a rather popular website in which the author advised Christians that they must exercise, and I quote, theological flexibility if they are going to survive. 
So what's the church to do? And how's the church to respond? How are we to live in these times in which we live and not go into hiding and not surrender? What do we do in these dark times? I remember when my older sister had gone off to college living in a dorm and uh, one night she got up in the night to whatever and, uh, and it was dark in the room and so, and so she, she gets out of the, the bed or whatever and so she's just trying to feel her way through the darkness. You know, it, it, you know how you do? And, 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 I, and I understand it, but, but she learned that there's something dangerous about trying to make your way through the darkness this way. You realize that a door is only about that wide. So here she is, you know, just trying to feel, and she ended up running smack into a door, right? Ever, you know, and it broke her nose. Ever since then, when I get up the night and I can't see where I, I'm going, I do one of these things. <laughs> I learned that lesson from her. Um, some things like walking Simple things like walking become more difficult and more dangerous in the dark. So how is the church to respond in these dark times in which we live? Should we pursue greater political strength in order to hold back the darkness? Do we just simply go into hiding and create Christian ghettos where it's just us and we keep everyone else out. Build the walls high around ourselves so that the world can't come in. The church of the Thessalonians was was a church that, that was birthed in very difficult circumstances. And it was a church that was existing in darkness and I believe it is, a, it is a church that shows us, if you will, leads the way, provides a model for us of what a church should be in the darkest hour. I mean, I've pondered in these questions, you know, uh, of, of, of what do we do? How do we respond in view of the, the, the daily onslaught of the horrific news and stories, all of which seem to demand a response? That has drawn me in all honesty, to the book of First Thessalonians. And as I've been working my way through this book numerous times, just reading and rereading and rereading, I'm reminded this is a book that is raising the kinds of issues we're facing. This church facing the, the same kinds of issues. Yeah, a, a, a different generation. I mean, not, almost 2,000 years ago facing the same kinds of pressures. But, but what really grabbed me, again, afresh as I was working through this book, which is why I believe this church becomes a church that models for us what a church should be in the darkest hour, is the emphasis in this book upon the return of Jesus Christ. We sang of that this morning. The return of Jesus Christ is mentioned in every single chapter. Not to, not to expound on, on all kinds of the, of the truths of, of, of last events, though, though chapter 4 is going to get into that a little bit more. But it is, it is brought up, the return of Christ is brought up continually as a reminder to these believers. And, and it, is, it is that which is to spur them on, to encourage them to be what they are to be in that dark hour. 
And I'm also reminded that Scripture informs us that when Christ return, he will return in the world's darkest hour. We heard that just a little bit in the Scripture reading this morning from the Gospel of Mark. That when Christ returns, he will return in the world's darkest hour. So as we, you know, as we wring our hands over what's happening in America, this letter actually calls upon us to look up, to remember that our redemption and our Redeemer draws nigh, that he is returning, he is coming again. That, that, and that's not intended to be an escapist attitude. You know, that somehow look up and then just forget, you know, don't pay attention to anything going around you. You know, just, just, just look up and, and, you know, and in your mind somehow you can escape out of this world. That's not the intent. Rather, the promise of the return of Christ is reality. And in 1 Thessalonians, it is that reality that energizes persevering hope in these believers. It is that reality that helps them to continue to be who they are supposed to be no matter what's going on around them, no matter what pressure is coming in to bear upon them. You see, Winston Churchill was a titanic personality in England's darkest hour, but that darkest hour is nothing, nothing compared to what is yet to come according to the Scriptures. And a mere human prime minister is all he was, and he is nothing in comparison to the king who is going to stride onto this world stage, not just to defeat the enemy, but to destroy him completely. That is what is coming. That is what is coming. But it will be preceded by dark dark times. So we need, (laughs) we need this letter of Paul to the Thessalonians. Real quick, just a little background. What what was it that led to the writing of of, of this letter? Well, uh, we we read out of Acts chapter 17, um, the account of, in Paul's second missionary journey, of how this church was started. Um, it, It started about 20 years after Christ uh, in his ministry here on earth. It was during Paul's second missionary journey. He was traveling with a companion named Silas. In fact, the previous chapter, Acts chapter 16, perhaps we're familiar with the story of Paul and Silas in, in prison and, and how God sent an earthquake and opened up the prison doors. And, and uh, that was really how that church in Philippi was founded. Uh, the, their next stop was Thessalonica. But as we read in that, in, in that text... Um, they, they ran into some trouble. They ran into some opposition. That's like, like just in case you're not familiar, just to, for you know, it's a, it's a city there in, in northern Greece. And uh, uh, when Paul and, and Silas, his companions, came over from, from modern-day Turkey, what was then called Asia Minor, Philippi is where they entered Europe. The gospel goes to Europe. And then they come down to the city of, of Thessalonica. It was, a, it was a, a provincial capital, so sort of like Columbus, Ohio. Thessalonica was the capital of that, prov- of that province, lying at, at a crossroads of, of trade routes, both east and west trade routes, north and south. It was, it was right along the major highway, the major east-west highway that led to the city of Rome. 
It was a very cosmopolitan city. It was on a, on a natural seaport. So people from all over the Roman Empire would come through this city in their travels. And so Paul had arrived and, and, uh, and had preached the gospel and, and people had been saved and so a church had been formed, but they faced severe opposition, so severe that Paul and his team had to make a hasty exit from the city. They hadn't finished the work. He, he wanted to stay longer. There was still more to do in, in grounding these believers in, in the word of God and helping them get on their feet. But, but Paul and Silas were, were rushed out of town. And, and so Paul has not been able to get back. He hasn't had any word. And he's wondering, you know, here are these young believers. They are facing these incredible pressures and, and persecution and, and all that that city uh, threw at them and, and the temptations. How are they doing? I mean, he's, he's wondering perhaps at times, are they still even doing? How's it going? And, or have they collapsed under the pressure in the face of the darkness? So he sent Timothy back to the city to check on them. And Timothy came back with a very encouraging report of his time among those believers, his time at that church. He came back also with some questions that they had. And, and he came back having made a few observations about some things in the church. And so Paul sits down to write a letter to those believers to encourage them, to answer some of the questions that they had raised, to address some of the concerns that needed to be addressed. So this church there in that city is a church for the darkest hour. In fact, as you read through the book of 1 Thessalonians, you'll find mention of the darkness. You'll find mention on Paul's part of, of Satan's opposition to the work that was going on. So how can we be a church then for the darkest hour? I really believe this is a question that 1 Thessalonians will answer for us. It will teach us. So that will be our theme as we study through this book. I just want to start with two descriptions. And they come just out of that first verse. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 1.1. If we're going to be a church for the darkest hour, then the first thing I think that is put right in front of us in these words is that we must embrace who we are. We must embrace who we are. And who are we? So, Paul and his team, they introduce themselves. They say, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We must embrace who we are. Paul writes this letter to a church. Now, our, our minds, we open up 1 Thessalonians and we say, oh, I wonder what he has to say to me in this book. Okay, okay, but you realize Paul's writing to a church. So his message isn't just for you and you and you. The message is for us. It's for us. We are the church. The church here of the Thessalonians. The church there in that city. It was a, it was a city that was very religiously diverse. There were, in, in Thessalonica, there were zealous Jews. There were enough Jews that they were granted permission to build a synagogue. And in the number of those Jews... Uh, there was a, a, a great zeal for the law of Moses, great zeal for the traditions there in that city. It was also a city filled with idolatrous pagans, the, 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 the Greek pantheon of gods. In fact, if you were to be in that city looking southwest across, across that, that, that bay, you would see nothing other than Mount Olympus. 
in Greek mythology where the pantheon of the Greek gods dwelt, Zeus being the head. And so there was, there was pagan idolatry throughout that city. There, there was a, a sanctuary that had been constructed in that city for the worship of the Egyptian gods. This was a city very much given over to worship of the emperor, Caesar. And so there was all of this going on, and there was, there was much mixing and, and intermingling among the, among the pagan religions and the emperor worship, and all of that got mixed into the politics of the city as well. Morally, the city was, was in darkness. They had the theaters, and, and, and their theaters increasingly produced productions that were crude uh, and violent and, and sexually explicit. The economy of that city uh, was, was built in a, a significant section of the economy on, on drinking and gambling and sex for all the travelers who would come in on the trade routes and would arrive on the boats and the harbors. Sexual immorality was the expectation in that city. And it was out of this background, it was from this setting, that Acts tells us that some Jews and a great multitude of devout Greeks and quite a few uh, leading women and many pagan idol worshipers, out of that background, they were converted. This was the, this was the makeup of this church. And you put it in the, in the historical setting, and this church, as Paul is writing them, is probably only a few months old. So let's imagine people who have come out of this background, who have been, who have been converted uh, to Jesus Christ, a whole church of them, not a one of them is probably more than a few months old in Jesus Christ in their faith. He writes to them, this is the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The church. What is the church? It's an assembly, literally called out ones. An assembly of people called out of the legalism of Judaism, called out of the idol worship of paganism, called out of the emptiness of religious ritual, called out of the bondage of of their sexual pursuits, called out of the darkness and into the light, called out by God through Jesus. See, the church is God's church, purchased with the blood of his own son, The church is a transformed people. The church is the redeemed people of God, indwelt by the Spirit of God, represented in local congregations, like the church of the Thessalonians, the church of the Nordonians. This is the church. It's who we are. It's who we are. He goes on, he has this very interesting little phrase here. He says, he says, the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a very unusual phrase for Paul. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In, he is the means by which the church came into existence. It is, it is the church of the Thessalonians brought into being or assembled by God and Jesus. This, this assembly of people there in that city was different from any other assembly of people in that city. No other like them. In that they were called out by God through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the church of the Thessalonians in God. The church is about God. He is the center. It is all about him. It's what Paul is driving home here. 
He is the source of of their existence, the source of all that they are. He is the focal point, the focus of it. Michael Holmes rightly observes in a piece that he wrote a shift that has taken place in how American Christians view the church. And I would submit to you that it is a view that has weakened the church and renders it not ready to face the darkness. He observes this, that uh, in these shifting views that church members are described as customers. Potential converts or members are seen as prospects. The gospel, church activities, and programs are seen as products to be marketed. Worship is confused with entertainment. Being good is confused with feeling good. And faithfulness with being successful or blessed. Because the highest priority in that setting is having my needs met. What happens is the tendency to shop a menu of churches, picking and selecting off each menu what best meets their needs. Viewing church in terms of what it can do for us or what it can do for me, they reflect the narcissism and the consumer mentality of our culture where man has replaced God as the center. There's without a doubt that it's happened in our culture. The tragedy is when it begins to happen in the church. Right and wrong, law and morality, good and evil, are not discussed with reference to God, but only discussed with reference to human beings and human society as the baseline. And In that setting, the church is viewed as just another human organization created by humans to meet human needs to contribute to human order. The bottom line of that view of the church then becomes this. What can it do for me? What can it do for me? Paul's opening statement here in verse 1 challenges all that by reminding the church of who it is. The church is God the Father's and Jesus Christ's. And the church has no life apart from God. The church has no life apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ. Nothing. It is not another human institution. It is the people of God assembled by Him for His worship, for His praise, for His glory, for the work of spreading the gospel. God does the calling. God sets the agenda. God gives the message, not us. God is the one who tells the church how it is to conduct itself. Because it is focused and centered on Him. God does not exist for the sake of the church. The church exists for the glory of God. That flies in the face of our culture. And a church that doesn't understand that or a church that departs from that is a church that will not be able to face the darkness. Rather, it is a church that will be consumed by the darkness. You see, the church in the darkest hour cannot lose sight of God as its center. Because then it loses what it's about. I was reminded of that November, I was in Atlanta coming back from the Dominican Republic. We were in the Atlanta airport. Uh, Busy because we were getting close to Thanksgiving. 
And uh, we happen to be down a terminal that, uh, of course, they've been doing a lot of remodeling in Atlanta, so it's like pretty scarce, no ceiling tiles, and, and this was a delayed flight, so a lot of, lot of people all around. And I happened to notice a, a young man, he was just in front of me, he was uh, military, dressed in his, uh, in his military uh, attire, and as is common in places like that, I noticed a, one or two gentlemen come up and you know, thank him for his military service. I was sitting behind him, and I was drawn to something that was on a patch that was on his backpack. And uh, so it says this. This is what was on this young man's, this soldier's backpack. I don't believe in anything. I'm just here for the violence. Um, I'm just going to say, I hope, I hope there's not very many of them. <laughs> going into battle with that mentality. I mean, if you will, if we lose God as the center, it's sort of like a soldier going into battle and forgetting why. Why? Why this mission? Why all all this training? Why that battle? You lose sight of that, and I guess all it would become, potentially, is just a, a violent rampage. We can't be a church that loses the center, that loses God as the center focus. It is all about Him. He is our existence. He is our life. He is our message. The church of the Thessalonians, the church of Northfield, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If we forget that, we might as well run the flag of the world up our pole and just join in. There is a second um, description that, that comes out of this opening verse that if we are going to be a church for the dark, the darkest hour. Number two, we must proclaim the gospel. That's a pretty basic statement, but I'm, I will never apologize for repeating that to us over and over and over and over again. We must proclaim the gospel. As Paul again greets them, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what is it that had transformed these people? What is it that had transformed these, these Jews and these and these pagan idolaters and, and some who perhaps formerly worshipped the emperor. What, what is it that had transformed these who had been caught up in the immoral lifestyle of that city? What transformed them? And, 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 and additionally, what is it that brought this church into existence? Well, I think Paul highlights it when he talks about grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that really is the gospel summed up in two words, grace and peace. That is the gospel. It needs more explanation, I get it, but grace, and peace. It's the gospel. You see, grace, grace refers to our standing before God. Grace is a word that means, that that refers to undeserved kindness. You see, standing before God is a gift. It's it's not something that we can can weasel our way way into. It's not a, a spot that we can earn. Apart from grace, no one has a right standing before God. No one. It's because of our sinful condition. 
You see, the, the, the sin, and, and Scripture would, would give us this understanding, that, that sin in our lives, it's like driving in a, in a thick fog at night. You know what I mean? It's already night, it's dark, you can't see very well. Now add on to that the thickness of the fog. You can't see farther than the hood in front of you. And what's worse, we're on a road headed for a cliff, which is the judgment of God. But being in the dark and being in the fog, we can't see that. We can't see the warning signs. We can't see what lies ahead. And there's nothing we can do to to lift the fog. Our, Our best intentions, our religion, our good works, our love for our fellow man, as noble as they might be, <clears throat> cannot lift the fog. Excuse me just a minute. That's our sinful condition. That's our sinful condition. We can't see. But God takes action. If we're going to have a right relationship with God, then God must do something. Because we can't. He must lift the fog. The gospel tells us that God has offered a way out through Jesus Christ. When the fog lifts, we see the danger ahead, (laughs) and we see a glorious deliverer named Jesus Christ allowing us to see. The clearest demonstration of grace, I think, is stated in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, where it says that God made him, that's Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's grace. God provides the way. That way is Jesus Christ. He provides forgiveness. He provides righteousness. He provides life. We can't earn it. It's grace. The only way into a right relationship with God is through Christ. By grace, received through faith. And this grace then changes our standing with God, and it changes our lives. Paul wrote these words to another, another church Colossians 1, he said, Christ has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. That's grace. The prophet Isaiah said it this way in Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. We stand transformed with a new life ahead. That's what had happened to these Thessalonians. Their lives had been changed. We'll read about that as we work through this letter. Their lives had been changed because of God's grace. This is what the church is. (laughs) We are the church in God the Father whose lives have been changed and are being transformed by the grace of God. So grace, our standing. And then there's this other word, peace. Peace speaks of our relationship with God. Grace speaks of our standing before God. Peace speaks of our relationship with God. The gospel of the good news of grace is also also the gospel of the good news of peace. Paul, quoting Isaiah, said, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace. You see, sin, sin destroys relationships. It destroys your relationship with God, and thus it will destroy your peace with God because sin is like being at war with God. Described this way, and you who once were alienated and enemies 
is how the scriptures describe us. Enemies. No peace with God. If you can imagine a convicted criminal who is fleeing justice, do you think there's any peace in his life? I mean, he's trying to keep ahead of the law and not get caught. Or I want you to think, uh, think with me maybe of that, of that convicted criminal who is yet awaiting the carrying out of the sentence. Maybe he's at home, you know, with the ankle bracelet. Maybe he's at home having posted bond, but he's awaiting that day <clears throat> that he has to show up, check in for prison. Do you think he's living in much peace day after day? Not at all. Not at all. When you're at war with God, you can't be at peace with him. If you think your works are what make you right with God, I can guarantee you don't have any peace in that because when do you ever know you've done enough? Works just call you to work harder and harder and harder. There is no peace. How many can't rest peacefully at night or live peacefully with others during the day because they have no peace with God? The gospel offers peace with God. Jesus offers you peace with God. Once we who were enemies, Paul writes, have now been reconciled. Peace with God. Interesting, these Thessalonian believers, they were facing angry mobs. These mobs were threatening their well-being. These mobs were threatening to break up their assembly. In some cases, these mobs were threatening their freedom. These mobs had chased away their friends, Paul and Silas, had chased them out of town. Talk about reason for anxiety. But you could take away all that stuff from these Thessalonians. But you couldn't take away their peace with God through Jesus Christ. And thus, when Timothy showed up to check on them, here was this church of young Christians facing the darkness and making an incredible gospel impact. Church for the darkest hour. Remembering who we are and proclaiming that message. Let me ask you this this morning. Have you received God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ? Have you received that? Are you at peace with God through Christ? It's what the gospel offers. It's what the gospel brings to you. Have you received his grace? It's the only way you can come into a right standing with God. Do you know his peace? It's the only way you can find peace is through Jesus Christ. If you've never trusted Christ as Savior, if you've never received that gracious gift, ask him. Ask him. And let me ask this question. What if, what if we, who have received grace and peace, what if we reaffirmed what it means to be the church in Northfield in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? What if we reaffirmed God at the center of our very <clears throat> existence and identity? 
what if we viewed worship services less and less in terms of what they do for us and more and more as our opportunity to glorify, praise, and worship God? What if we considered our church ministries less and less as a means of meeting our needs and more and more as opportunities to serve others as disciples and servants of Jesus Christ? What if we viewed our gathering together with others less and less as an intrusion into our weekend schedules and more and more as an opportunity to to declare by how we spend our time our allegiance to our God? You see, the way for a church to face the darkness is not by appeasing the world. We must be who we are. We are the church of God and Jesus. We must proclaim the gospel of grace and peace. There is no other way for a church to thrive and impact in the darkest hour. No other way. That's all we need. Would you pray with me? Father, we are your church. You have purchased us through the shed blood of your own son. You have given us your spirit. We are yours. You are our life. You are our goal. You set the agenda. You give the marching orders. You are the one who has every right and who has the authority to tell us how to conduct ourselves in these days in which we live. It is you. Lord, we confess, because it seems to be the inclination of the human heart, that we struggle with not making it about ourselves. It is an, an honest struggle, but Lord, it's a struggle that, that must be won through faith in Christ. The focus is you. The center is you. We're nothing. It's a church. We're, we're, we're nothing without you. We have nothing apart from the redemptive grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we come to you afresh to confess our need, to reaffirm that you are the center and must be the center of it all. We come again to affirm and to, and to declare the glorious gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ. Your grace, your gift, your kindness given to us who do not deserve it. Forgiveness, life, righteousness, peace. God, that's what our world needs. It needs your grace. It needs your peace. Through your kindness and by your power, help us to be the kind of church that even in the darkest hour can be what you've called us to be, shining the light 
of your grace and your glory to all who are around us. There's no other way. And it can't be done in our own, our own willpower. We need you, Father. We need your spirit. So work, we pray, to that end. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, we're going to sing as we close uh, our time together, as we reflect, respond to the Lord. And so just before I close this prayer, I just wonder, I ask if there's anyone here you've never received the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. You have not received his salvation because you've never asked, you've never humbled yourself to come before him and confess your sin. Call upon him to be your savior. Perhaps you're, you've been of the persuasion that you could sort of work off the bad things in your life and if you got enough uh, credit points for good stuff, you would be accepted. That's not how grace works. Perhaps this morning the Lord's helped you to see that and to understand that in order to be saved, you must just call upon him in faith to forgive you, to give you life. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you've never done that, might I urge you this morning to do that, right where you're seated. Call upon him to save you, and he will. Additionally, as we sing, uh, I'll be to the front, we'll have some people here in the front who would be happy to talk with you and answer questions you might have. Perhaps you have some more questions about this. They're ready to go aside with you and just open God's word and do the best they can to answer the questions you may have. And if you'll just, as we're singing, slip out, come to the front, we'll have someone go aside with you privately and they'll talk and share with you. Christians, what if, uh, what if we reaffirm what it means to be the church of God in God, uh, the church here in Northfield in God and the Lord Jesus Christ, God at the center of it all? That's only something that, if a church is going to answer that question, it really does require each of us who are part of that church to answer the question. So I urge you in this time of this response to the Lord as we sing to ponder those things. Again, if we can be of help to you, if we can pray with you, that would be our privilege. Let's ask God for his grace. And so, Lord, we do. It is you that we need. It is your grace your power. So come, even in this moment, work in our lives so that we can be a church for the darkest hour. We pray in Jesus' name.